work closely or get out of the way. So we we can't be the problem in ourselves. So we have to ensure that we are enabling those communities and those leaders to really drive that social purpose. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Belinda Morrissey. Belinda has had a fascinating career. She's spanned the investment world, corporate purpose, and now philanthropy. She is CEO of English Family Foundation. They were launched in 2010 by Alan and Tessa English, founders of Silverchef, an ASX-listed B Corp focused on the hospitality industry. Before we jump into the show, could I just ask whatever platform you're on, please hit follow. It'll ensure you get future episodes. It'll also help me to get the message out there and impact positively on more lives. Enjoy the episode. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Linda Morrissey, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. I appreciate that. You're the CEO of the English Family Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Ah, great question. So the English Family Foundation, we have the mission of really creating and supporting transformational change in our world through the growth and development of social entrepreneurs and social businesses. And you're split that or your time, like you, you have two roles effectively, don't you? So you also are leading an organization called SENS, which is a, a peak body, but tell us more about that as well. Yeah, well, look, so I guess the English Family Foundation, um, it is a family foundation. So we have the really beautiful privilege of being able to fund and act in a really strong sense of agility. So we've always looked at where the gaps in the sector. And and for us, it's about social enterprise and how we can really support the growth and development of social enterprise here in Australia and also in our closest neighbours, particularly Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea. But here in Australia, um, we've really looked at the role of philanthropy. That's something that we're really passionate about. And understanding where philanthropy can and should be adding value, I think, is really important. And understanding that there is more than just being the ATM that philanthropy can do. So what we do is we look at what we termed our engaged philanthropy strategy. And we did that a number of years ago, and now the the term has become quite um, normalized away, so we might need to look at changing the name. But in essence, our engaged philanthropy strategy looks at what we can do with our corpus, so that looks like our grant making and our impact investments, but it also looks at our time. And so our time is both mine and our founder, Alan English's time, and where we can and should be and where we're invited to participate. And then it's also looking at sort of being a a network weaver, if you like, because philanthropy is very difficult environment to understand if you're not inside philanthropy. And it's also, it's a really beautiful privilege. So we get to meet an incredible depth and breadth of people. So connecting the dots and bringing people together is something that we also feel really passionate about. So SENS is a social enterprise national strategy, which we've been working together with the sector as part of our engaged philanthropy in that sort of impact value of time sense uh, for the last three and a half years now. And that is now really, so the, the origins of SENS is really that back when the COVID pandemic hit, there was the first ever social enterprise unconference here in Australia. And at that unconference, there was a breakout room, if you like. One of the conversations led by Matt Farlett at Acre was really like, is the time now to actually engage the federal government in a national strategy for social enterprise? If now, not now, when? And there was a lot of people in that one little Zoom conference room, breakout room, as we all know now, but at the time it was quite novel. And it was really clear that the sector wanted to pursue this. And so I knew Matt really well, reached out to Matt and a a number of us in the sector 
really started to develop what a national strategy with the federal government would look like. We put together um, some funding to get the uh, UNIS Centre from Griffith University to actually conduct the research that went far and wide. So looked at the social enterprise sector here in Australia, looked at it overseas. It looked at influences both inside and outside of the sector, so cross-sector collaborations as well. And it looked at what would it take to get a national strategy. And out of that, really the very clear message was that, yes, it's very important for the social enterprise sector to create a national strategy, but actually the sector needs to have its own vision and mission first. So the sector needs to be more connected, more in tune and be able to go to the, to the federal government with one voice, with one ask, with one really strong driver. And in the past, it's been very disconnected and, and disparate in essence. So the SENS, the Social Enterprise National Strategy, was really around bringing the sector together around a shared vision mission so that we can then develop a deep partnership with the federal government. So, um, yes, so within SENS, I guess I was chairing the advisory council for that, and we've now developed Social Enterprise Australia, which is the national peak body for social enterprises in Australia. And if you like, it's the vessel that um, has held the national strategy initiative within the social enterprise sector. So I, I chair... SEA as well. Wonderful. And so some, some big numbers out of that. So 1,200 social enterprises in Australia impacts kind of estimated around 21 billion in terms of economic impact. Um, you know, 200,000 jobs, not, not insignificant impact. That's the thing. I think, you know, it's really interesting because we've done a lot of work at trying to understand, well, what are the what are the drivers and what are the blockages and, and what's the language? Because language is so important and we know that, but we also take it for granted sometimes. And actually looking at the economic impact of the social enterprise sector was really important for us to be able to have different conversations. So this is not about nice-to-haves, doing the right thing, being really charitable, those are all really important and absolutely inherent. But actually, it's really important to demonstrate the economic impact of this sector. It's not just a charity. This is creating $21 billion of economic impact alone each year. And that's just the raw estimate in a way. You know, if we were able to do a much deeper dive census or other sorts of data sets that just don't exist at that level of detail at the moment, we might be able to refine that. But that's a really conservative estimate of what the sector is contributing to Australian economy. And focus a bit on the English family and focusing mm -hmm. a bit on, on Alan, because there's some, you know, like he, his business enterprise was focused on purpose and profit, wasn't it? So he, he ran a, a B Corp company and he really had this idea that there's no point in making money for money's sake. Actually, it should be about impacting the, the world positively, uh, the, the environment positively. But yeah, just a bit of a focus on, on Alan and, and maybe how you guys, your path crossed as well. So, I mean, Alan is a really beautiful and rare individual, as everybody that knows him knows very deeply. And as you said, he he started and uh, ran for many years a, a B Corp company. And that company, in essence, started to sort of be very, very successful. And he reached a point where he was like, well, I'm making, you know, starting to make decent money now, but why? And it was really at that point in time that he started to look and understand what the purpose was and what his own purpose was and looking at um, he made a, a donation to an organization called Opportunity International and Opportunity came back to him and said that's fantastic thank you so much do you realize with your donation we've been able to achieve and reach so many people and you know went through and detailed the impact of his donation and it really it sort of struck a chord with Alan that if he could leverage that type of impact, then surely we can move towards solving some really entrenched, wicked problems in the world. 
And so he set up through the English Family Foundation, which he established with his family in 2010 by putting half the family wealth into this foundation. And he set up a, uh, a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal of putting the funding in place through Opportunity International to fund through microfinance and other holistic wraparound services, but to fund a million people out of poverty which is no, by no means a small feat. And um, what was really beautiful was that Alan was able to host the Opportunity International Brisbane office out of his actual company's offices. And the staff became very, very highly engaged in the Opportunity International uh, BHAG, as we called it, and um, developed their own BHAG. They added another half a million people to that. So through the English Family Foundation and through the staff and customers of the organization Alan had started Silverchef, they really, we were able to really drive the funding to put in place the funding for a million and a half people to be moved through poverty, through action, uh, through Opportunity International. Wonderful. And it was a hospitality business, wasn't it? And he talks about doing some study in philosophy and really almost sounded from the outside, like not, maybe not a midlife crisis, but trying to think about what is the purpose of life. So turning this sort of for-profit hospitality company into this real do-good, change-the-world entity that also launches a charitable foundation. Like, Tell us a bit about the man himself. Oh, well, you'll have to ask Alan that one. Um, only Alan can answer those questions, but I've had the absolute beautiful privilege of working with Alan for the last decade. So I guess I have a little, little bit of an insight into that. So in essence... Yes, Alan, as you said, he's studied philosophy and he just is one of these lifetime learners. He's always studying and developing different skill sets and really exploring how we live our best life. And one of the things that we've been able to do through the English Family Foundation is actually match Alan up with a number of young or early stage or even some of them are a bit later stage, social entrepreneurs as a mentor. And that's been really beautiful because Alan gets the whole point and the challenges and the barriers and obstacles and the endless opportunities of starting up your own business and with that social outcome lens, but really also has the ability to bring a a much broader holistic worldview, if you like, to those conversations as well. So that's been a really beautiful way that we as the English Family Foundation can also try and add some values back into the sector too. Yeah, your real focus seems to be on enablement. Yeah, it it is. Because we are a, a family foundation, so we're only a small foundation, really, if we look at sort of philanthropic the sector itself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that our impact has to be small. So we have to really look and understand what's the best way that we can support and enable and optimize and leverage and really bring others around particular issues that that we are really passionate about. And that's been a, a really beautiful way for us to engage others in our work. And it's, I think it's quite a brave thing in many ways eh, to put your sort of found your na- family name on the door, if you like, and, um, you know, be, be so public with your philanthropy. What do you see the positives of, of a f- family foundation structure and, and you know, the, the way, the example that you've set in terms of, I guess there's also some real freedom in terms of the, the causes that you support and, and the gaps you tried to fill? Yeah, look, there's no doubt about it, but that by being a family foundation, it's um, it brings a lot of privileges and benefits with us. So, as I mentioned before, you know, it's really important, the agility. So, we really need to understand where we want to, where we feel that we can best add value. And for us, we believe with Alan's background and with my background in the capital markets, for us, that's within the social enterprise sector. Um, and we've always tried to really understand the gaps in the market. So where are the areas that other philanthropy isn't going? Because it's perhaps not the sexiest area or not the highest, deemed to be the highest impact. And so when we first started, we were able to look at elements like the the really early stage and then sort of move through what 
we call that valley of death. You know, you've got through, you're excited, you've got a few years under your belt, but now you're not quite as attractive. You're not the new shining star on the on the equation potentially. And so that sort of really difficult period of that sort of three to seven year mark of understanding how how you get to sustainability, how you keep resourcing. And that was our our focus for a number of years. But I guess for the last few years, we've been able to really look at how we develop the ecosystem that enables the social enterprise sector to thrive. So, so it's still supporting some of the individual social enterprises, but looking more particularly at at that ecosystem. So the enabling, the things like the Social Enterprise National Strategy, like Social Enterprise World Forum last year, bringing that to Australia was something that we worked with the sector for five years to do. So um, I think being a family foundation enables us to be very agile in relation to that, to be able to sort of bring our leverage to bring a sense of collaboration. And then I think within, and and I can't obviously speak for the family themselves, but certainly what I've been able to witness is that a family foundation is a beautiful way for the family to really, or to enable the family to have a shared vision, a shared values around life and the world and the bigger some of the bigger challenges that society as a whole are facing and it's um, a way to really engage all members of the family around some of those challenges and and that shared vision and values that they have wonderful and changing tact for a bit and taking you way back and i really want to sort of unpack your career your career from from corporate if you like and finance to (laughs) to purpose and philanthropy but yeah, go, going right back to your sort of childhood, this is this is way back. But when you consider what you oh, do long now, time ago. yeah, consider now, are there any sort of foundations to the way you were brought up that would lead you to think that you would work in purpose and and you know want to make a difference, a positive difference to the world? Yeah, look, I think that everybody is is shaped either positively or negatively by their families, by their communities, by their experiences. That's what makes us all unique. And I guess I was really fortunate to grow up in a a very strong values-based middle-class Adelaide Catholic family. And we um, were very strong. My family was a very strong part of the local church community. And at that time, it was a... I guess a time in Adelaide's history where they were expanding different suburbs and our suburb that my parents moved into when they were first married was a very newly formed suburb down by the beach, down by Henley Beach. And so a lot of new families moved in and there was this beautiful group of this extended community of aunties and uncles, I guess, that I grew up with. Um, We called them the Henley South Mob. And it was literally like 20 or so families that came together every week through church. But also, you know, we all loved hiking. So we would do lots and lots of different things together as an extended family community. And so I guess from an early age, understanding the strength of family and understanding the strength of community was pretty deeply entrenched within my value set. When I went to university and sort of worked afterwards, I, I still recall one of my first jobs um, after university. And, you know, you, as a, a graduate on the accelerated graduate program, I think it was called at the time, get invited up to the sort of echelons, the uh, at the time, the uh, CEO of the organization, the bank that I was working with, and get to have drinks with him. And everybody was very nervous. Oh, my gosh, you know, we're meeting the, the top man. And he um, was mingling with us, and he turned to me and he said, so what do you define as success, Belinda? You know, what's how, do, how are you going to define success in your life? And it's one of these moments that you still recall all these decades later. And I said, oh, I want to be really fulfilled and I want to be really happy and I want to feel like I'm adding value. And he looked at me and he just blanked me and then turned to the next person. <laughs> yeah. And this guy said, oh, yes, well, I want to be running my own company within five years, blah, blah, blah. And then the CEO of the company that had blanked me turned to this guy and went, oh, fantastic. And they went off and had this amazing conversation. And I just went, ah, oh, that 
wasn't the right thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I reflect on that now and I think, well, actually that was the right thing for me to say at that time. It just wasn't the right perhaps emphasis for that environment that I was in. Yeah. I mean, one way of looking at it, you're ahead of your time because you would say that, you know, purpose is a, as a, a real driving force in a lot of people's, happy people's lives. So you did an economics degree and focus on accounting. So finance was, or numbers came easily to you? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I did economics because I was sort of very interested in, in macroeconomics at the time and the big drivers, I guess. And I did accounting, um, not so much to be an accountant, but because I figured at the time uh, that that would be the best way to understand business and understand how companies worked, in essence. So, um, would I, if I had my time again, would I still do that? I'm not sure, but that was the decisions at that point in time. And like so many Australasian teenagers, or it looks like 20-somethings, <laughs> the, um, the, the big OE beckoned well that's what it looked like to me is, is that is that how it worked you ended up overseas thinking travel <laughs> Europe well, tell us a bit about that yeah look I'm, I was from Adelaide so Adelaide's a beautiful place but you um there is the six degrees of separation as we as we say fondly in Adelaide so I think pretty consistently within my generation a lot of people did want to travel have the opportunity to work overseas and really explore different cultures explore different ways of of working um and so my my little dream was to be overseas within five years and uh i did achieve that so yeah i think on the year five i went i can either stay in adelaide or and and uh continue this or i can leave and, and work overseas so I, I moved to london at that point yeah yeah and a bit that was a bit of a shock to the system pretty big city yeah, I think there was such a strong community of Australians that it's really not that much of a shock to the system, <laughs> in essence. So, so you're, you're in London, you end up working in the investment world, and, and tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, look, I mean, London is a fantastic city. I was just back there recently, actually, which was fantastic. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of money and a lot of expertise and a lot of really smart people in the in the capital world and it got to the situation I guess and I was with um Investec asset management by this time and sort of really trying to understand where I guess where my north star was in the world uh doing a lot of volunteering around things and just sort of you know working within that capital markets was a great basis, if you like, of understanding how capital flows and what it flows to and where the drivers are, what are the the challenges and the barriers to really driving capital into different markets. So that was a really great opportunity to learn all of that. And in terms of the sort of culture that you know, you, you're in Mayfair, I'm I'm guessing. Um in terms of the, you know, you've got you've got sort of you've just described there sort of some leanings towards purpose and and real world impact tell us about some of the differences of what you saw and what you're exposed to oh this is taking me back mark um look i think that there was a lot of different different personalities within the corporate market and the, the capital markets my apologies um a lot of good people a lot of people um, who were there making a ridiculous amount of money, and I think you know, going down the pub with some of the um, some of the guys who were sitting on half a million pound bonuses and thinking, really, my team of staff, you know, don't earn near nearly that amount of money, and yet they were probably still on very good pay if we consider some of the social workers at the time. So just really, it was driving. I guess my awareness of the inequalities in the world as well. It was quite an eye opener, shall we say? Yeah, and during that time, you were you got sort of exposed to the community foundation model, which ended up being a bit of a, a game changer for you. Tell us a bit about that. So, within Investec Asset Management, which I was working with at the time, the first client that I won for them was a community foundation, and I, at that point in time, hadn't actually come across that model before. I guess I really hadn't been exploring in that environment. And when I 
started to work more closely with this community foundation, which was the Newcastle Community Foundation within the UK. And at the time, the CEO was a, an incredible man called George Hepburn. And he really sort of took me under his wing and sort of said, Belinda, come with me and I'll show you the way the world really works. And just understanding the model that a community foundation has developed in relation to give where you live. So really pulling on resources and then utilizing those resources to drive change within their local communities. And it was really smart. It was just like, wow, this is a really simple but transformational way of moving capital into purpose. And it was a real game changer for me because I saw a model that I could participate in, um, which I think was really important for me in my career. And amongst your colleagues, they they weren't necessarily lit up by this because it was a relatively small amount of capital that was that was um, on the table like that <laughs> in relative terms yeah yeah well um you know we obviously had benchmarks of the ideal client and this was slightly smaller than that but when i think about the corpus that this client that this community foundation had and it was you know 20 years ago it was phenomenal in today's terms. So it's certainly not a small client in community foundations world, but certainly was at the capital markets at that point in time, where the drivers are very different. And you're starting to get quite interested in the, the power or the impact of philanthropy, and, and particularly around that place-based philanthropy. But you land back in Australia, from what I can see, and you, you, know, you go down a, a sort of very much a philanthropic route. At the same time, you combine that with some study. Tell us a bit about the sort of the sort of refocusing of your career and and being a bit more intentional. Yeah, well, actually, I did the study first. Um, I did a postgraduate in philanthropy, which does amuse lots of people that you can study philanthropy. But absolutely, it's a it's a really important opportunity. I think if you're going to significantly change careers into purpose, is to really take time to understand it. And so by doing this postgraduate, it was an opportunity to not only learn the mechanics of philanthropy, of grant making, of social impact, et cetera, et cetera, but also to build a network um, uh, in a, a sector that at that point in time, I probably didn't have as deep a network as I needed to have. So it was a great opportunity to really meet and be inspired by some incredibly passionate Australians. Um, But it was also an opportunity to be able to think and understand and examine issues from an ethical lens and really look at what that driver is. And and sort of, you know, and and even to this day, I still think strongly of the ethics of things and look at the unintended consequences and and just try and, and really consider the the systemic shifts that need to happen on particular issues or organizations that I'm looking at within my daily work. So a lot of those mechanisms, if you like, were developed and and built on from from that postgraduate, which is brilliant. Mm. And so at that time, you were also, you had a a role as a sort of corporate social responsibility manager. So, you know, and you've, you've been walking amongst the corporate world, if you like, and being around the sort of starting to be around the sort of purpose bit of the corporate piece. What was that experience like? And did it make you, was that a positive thing? Did it make you more cynical? Did you feel like it was a, a sort of taken seriously? It was central to their strategy? Like, give us a feel about your experiences in working corporate social responsibility during that time. Yeah, look, I guess because I knew the corporate world, the, the, finance world. So it seemed a a very logical step into purpose to really drive CSR strategy within the corporate, a particular corporate that I worked for at the uh, the time. And it was, it was quite interesting because, you know, there you'd be presenting to the, the highest echelons, the, the senior leadership team and some of them would be going, yeah, yeah, get this, I get this, I can see that this is an incredible driver of, of uh, employee engagement. It's a driver of client engagement. I can see the impact that we, the potential of what we can do here. And others, it, it wasn't speaking the language that they were used to. 
So this is still a good decade and a half ago. So I think CSR has significantly moved on since then. Um, and actually, I, w- I recall being part of a CSR community of practice back then of others in that field as we were all trying to really take a very action-based learning approach to some of the challenges that we were facing within our own corporates and learn together and how we collectively shift the dial on understanding and opening uh, corporates' uh, language and opportunities around creating impact through their daily work, not just through their charitable giving, but also through the actual mechanisms of that particular company as well. So. It's certainly moved on a lot since then, fortunately, which is great. Do you remember having that thought at the time? Like, so, you know, on one hand, a company would be using their sort of, um, you know, maybe their IP to do good in the world as long as well as the, some profit they might make, which they may give away, you know, to, to some causes on the side as sort of side of the desk stuff. But do you remember at the time thinking this just isn't a central part of their focus and until it is, it's not going to be taken fully seriously. Yeah, that was absolutely evident. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think some of the conversations that we were able to have within the um, the philanthropy course, which at that point I had just really completed, was were quite important to that because it was trying to really look at how we shift the dial at a systemic level and understanding that, and, and I guess this is where the driver for the English Family Foundation is how do we use the markets to shift societal wicked problems and challenges that we have? And until we really start to normalise social impact through every aspect of what we're doing as an individual, as a community, as a company and, and as a society, we're not going to be able to shift these these, these wicked challenges that we're facing. So, yes, I think it was slightly frustrating at the time back then um, and certainly really um, I did, I was really lucky to be able to move into the Sydney Community Foundation, which was something that was my aspiration at the time because I had fallen in love with that model and drove that for a number of years and then moved into more the sort of actual philanthropy area and that was when I first met Alan and um, been working with the English Family Foundation since then. So were you involved in some of his and their early giving? Uh, the Family Foundations? Yeah, in terms of, so that was with the yeah. Australian Philanthropic Services. Yeah, that's correct. So um, so I guess Alan came to Australian Philanthropic Services, which I was at the time their grant-making consultant with the very incredible Fiona Higgins. And Alan came to APS to really get some support around the grant-making strategy. And um, I started working with him more consistently over time. So I came to the Australian Philanthropic Services and started working uh, with Alan in relation to the grant-making strategy and just some of the early grant-making that they were doing through the foundation. And then over time, really progressively moved more focused into the English Family Foundation and I've been working really closely with them for quite a number of years now actually which is beautiful. And it seems relationships have been a key part of your career journey and and story and a key part of your move towards sort of more purposeful stuff would that be say as as truthful like around like-minded or aligned people strong relationships building networks all that stuff can mean real life change? Yeah, look, I think that relationships have always underpinned every aspect of what I've done, uh, what I've um, been able to achieve right throughout my career. And so, you know, I, I one of the, I guess my mantra in well in the world is that beautiful old statement that change comes at the speed of trust. So trust and relationships really underpin everything. I think that we do in our world and the ability to and, and power and understanding power is also another really strong driver and I think what we've been able to do through the English Family Foundation and through my work with the board of ActionAid Australia is really understand how we shift power, how we equalise power and 
you know, when I was working in the capital markets, it was all about money as the driver of power. And we still see that, you know, we, we know that in our society. So how do we within philanthropy really look at embracing the power that philanthropy has and shifting that out to our grant partners and equalizing that power and using that power for good is is a really strong underlying value to everything that we do. Yeah, and that combination of philanthropy and social enterprise, and then maybe philanthropy is an enabler for enterprise. Tell us a bit about your thoughts on that, because there's some, you know, philanthropy can can follow lost leaders or it can innovate, it can try things that because it doesn't necessarily have to be a sort of economic return model um, to it. You know, it can do things for good or it can innovate. It could, depending on who's got the money and who's investing the money, people have an ability to to throw money at whatever they want. But yes, <laughs> in terms of sc- scaling projects or in terms of scaling impact and really having a positive impact on a big scale and, and you know, dealing with some of the big challenges we have around the environment and also social issues we have, do you see that as a really fundamental part of it, like the, the enterprise element of it is crucial, but philanthropy also is the enabler? Yeah, look, really big questions there in essence because I think philanthropy sits in a very privileged position to be able to take a step back and look at real-world challenges and understand and develop deep partnerships and relationships and ability to to really challenge and question what's working and what's not working and why and where those lessons are and what we need to be doing and what you know really I think is happening within philanthropy now is this enormous paradigm shift around new ways of thinking and new ways of working and understanding that you know how we that the social economy is changing and and how we fund and deliver social outcomes is changing and philanthropy needs to is is the the ability to be that really early stage risk capital to underpin and and be courageous and to support those that are being courageous. I mean, that's that's what we we do. We are able to unlock and leverage and bring resources and power to those who are able to drive that social change. And I think that's a, a really uh, incredible privilege that we have. So that's been a, a really strong driver, I guess, of what we've been thinking through. And, and I think you're right. There is this sense of urgency we have so many of the solutions. We need to enable and uh, unlock those solutions and let the communities do what they need to be doing. They know the answers so often. And philanthropy needs to, in a way, work closely or get out of the way. So we, we can't be the problem in ourselves. So we have to ensure that we are enabling those communities and those leaders to really drive that social purpose. And do you think that's probably one of the shifts, actually? So, you know, there's a, in history, there's a lot of successful business people who've turned their hand to, you know, solving some of the big issues around the environment or, or society. And they, they'll come at it from a sort of business, you know, perspective or using that lens. But actually, what they've failed to do is actually really listen and learn yeah. and understand. And do you think that's, that's probably the biggest evolution? That's certainly something that Alan appears to have kind of woken up to? Yeah, look, I think you've, talking about listening is really important. And I think, you know, when I look around at the, some of the, the, some of the foundations around me uh, here and overseas, and I look at those that I really admire and respect, and it's those that actually understand the power of listening and understand the power of communities and that we don't need to keep reinventing the wheel that we have a really strong resource-constrained sector. And so the power of philanthropy is to really enable and provide flexible funding and value beyond funding is really important because there's so much that we can bring to the table. We have lots of tools in our toolkit and actually being invited in through that listening process and that learning process and, and therefore earning trust and, you know, as I said, change comes at the speed of trust. So it's really 
underpins everything that philanthropy does. And you you touched on it before, but you're you're chair of a of a of Action Aid in Australia. You have you know you have two roles effectively. You know you're you have a uh, part time as CEO of the English Family Foundation. You're also leading um, Sens. Tell tell us a bit about how you. And there's probably other stuff that you do as well. But tell us a bit about what your sort of working week like and and how you sort of do it all. You're also a mother. I am a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a wife. I'm a friend. I'm a member of my community. All sorts of things. Oh, look, I think everybody has um, challenges in developing work-life balance. I think COVID taught us a lot about the sense of community and the sense of family. And it was a an interesting time. It, it certainly deepened inequality in our society, but I think on a personal level, it was actually a, an, a beautiful opportunity for me to really deepen community and connection on many levels. So, I work part-time with the English Family Foundation, and you mentioned SENS and Social Enterprise Australia that I'm, I'm particularly passionate about, and the great work that the team are doing there is actually an initiative that I can do through my role with the English Family Foundation. So we're not just providing that grant making, as I said before, but actually being able to chair an organisation as my role of philanthropy, I think, is, is a really beautiful way, uh, it's a beautiful approach. Um, and so that's something that I do within the part-time work within English Family Foundation. And then the work with ActionAid Australia is really in my own time, if you like. So I tend to spend Fridays on ActionAid. Although yesterday, which was a Thursday, we had World Humanitarian Day. And we have these two amazing, incredible women over from, we have Flora Vano, who's the country director from ActionAid Vanuatu, and Susan Otieno, who's the country director from ActionAid Kenya. And we had a lunch with these two amazing women leaders yesterday. And it was just so powerful to hear their story and be inspired by them and understand the real challenges. You know, Flora at one stage said, these are stories, but these are more than stories. This is my life. And I think it's easy to read stories and listen to people and understand, but when you see and understand from them within their own words, their life and the very, very real challenges that women are facing in these communities, it it just seems like the sense of urgency is not urgent enough. There is so much we need to be doing. Yeah, and fully inspired by that day, by the sound of it, it's not it's those people standing in front of you who have overcome huge barriers but are making it happen. Yeah, exactly. It's the and and I think that's is the beautiful element that Action Aid can often bring is to really shine a light on women who are driving change within their communities, you know, who are at the front lines of adversity. These two women yesterday were at the front lines of of climate change in their community within Vanuatu. You know, they were facing increasing climatic challenges through um, hurricanes and and cyclones more and more frequently now within uh, Kenya. Susan was talking about the three years of incredible drought within the uh, Horn of Africa, and that's affecting 50 million people who are now in extreme states of drought and the implications on family life on those droughts, the the rising gender inequality and violence against women, um, it's very real. And so actually having the opportunity to hear from these two women themselves and understand their personal journey towards change as well is very, very powerful and so inspiring. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house yesterday. So I think a lot of people can really resonate and understand when you have that beautiful opportunity. Yeah, because crucially with causes, and you just described some really fundamental ones, is you know, like you can feel weighed, da- weighed down by the scale of the problem, the challenge, but crucial to, you know, if you're going to get people on board to help, you know, maybe it's with funds, maybe with enabling, helping with capacity, you've got to show some opportunity and you've got to show some sort of 
glimmer of of light, don't you, at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. And, and do you, you feel broadly positive about that we as society can solve some of these problems? Like, do you, does that drive part of what you do? I think that goes to the sense of urgency, but it definitely drives what we do both within ActionAid Australia and, and also within the English Family Foundation. Both of those are driven by a real sense of urgency that we need to overcome and enable people with their abilities to overcome the challenges that they're facing. Um, certainly within ActionAid, the women on the ground, and if we just look at Vanuatu, for example, they've developed, you know, there's 9,000 women in the movement now. These are women right across um, five or six of the, the main islands of Vanuatu who are driving change in their community that's been trained up by the Action Aid team but are now taking leadership. And when we look at um, sort of crises, women and children are more likely to die in a disaster than men. And so often it's the women who are the front line immediate uh, responders in a time of crisis. Before the government or before the aid agencies had come in, they're the ones who are actually going and finding all the vulnerable people and looking after the elderly, the children, etc. So I think that the work that ActionAid is doing to enable women to prepare, really plan for disasters so that when disasters hit, they know exactly how to how to sort of jump into action and they know where everybody in their community is. They know exactly how to get everybody into the evacuation centres. And really importantly, because in, um, you know, with the climatic conditions in Vanuatu, you know, the Women with Disabilities Network are now leading the evacuations and the uh, disaster responses in their communities. And these are women who typically in the past would have been left behind by their families not able to access the evacuation services that they need because of their disabilities, but they're actually driving and showing leadership now. So those are the types of inspiring stories that really cut a path forward for society to say that, yes, this is happening on a more frequent basis, but we need to ensure that we're prepared, that we're enabled, and that we're empowered to be able to respond to that. And then, obviously, it doesn't just work at the community level. We have to look at the drivers of climate change, and I think that's systemic, fundamental looking at and understanding those initial drivers is is a really key part of what ActionAid does. And it serves, you know, it, it speaks really clearly to what we're looking and focused on within the English Family Foundation as well. Yeah. And as chair, just to close that off in terms of your chair role, so it's, it's around engaging people, driving funds towards doing more of what you just described? Yeah, absolutely. The board of ActionAid Australia is an incredible group of really passionate women who understand about gender, who understand about women's rights and gender equality. And um, we've been able to build a really strong culture within the board, which I think is really important. So obviously within any board of a company or a charity, there is the basic level of governance that we have obligations to fulfill. But over and above that is that governing for social impact. And that's what really drives us as a board is how can we enable and leverage and unlock ActionAid's ability to create even greater impact. So governance roles, leadership roles, you do a fair amount of doing as well and getting on with it. Like, what's your superpower, Glenda Morrissey? Like, what, <laughs> what do you bring to the party? Look, I think you touched on relationships, and I think relationships are really key to what drives me, being able to sort of be a, a weaver, if you like. There's a, a beautiful term coined out of the US, being a network weaver, and, and I aspire to that. And I think that... Just the ability to to gain trust and to work within trust and equalize power is is really important to me and and drives a lot of the different approaches. So, what is my superpower? I think my superpower is those that I work with that constantly inspire me because they give me the ability 
to keep going and that really strong drive and their passion and their experience and expertise and wisdom is just unbelievable. It's absolutely breathtaking. So it's been a real privilege to be able to sort of work with some of those people and um, and be able to sort of support them through the work that we're doing. Are you comfortable being the leader, being the focal point? Well, I think that it's a collaboration and I think that's the way that we need to look at it. And um, we have to we have to drive change and we have to be vocal. So if that means that I am sitting on a panel talking about it and trying to drive others to come along, then that's fine. That's a form of leadership. If I'm putting Alan up there, if I'm putting, you know, if I look at Social Enterprise Australia, it's it's not about me. It's about driving the leadership within the team. We have an incredible CEO in Jess Moore, ActionAid Australia. We have the most incredible CEO within Michelle Hichelin. And so to me, leadership looks like actually driving and enabling those around me to be their best selves and to be able to be more in the limelight in essence in that sense too. So there's different ways of leading, I think, and understanding what works for me and and where we where I feel I can best add value where I'm invited in is really important. And for someone listening who wants to utilize their profession, the way they earn money, the way they survive to do good for purpose, what would be your advice in terms of, you know, the next step? Is to take a step. And often it's that first step that's the hardest. And people, as you said before, the the challenges in our society, particularly around climate and gender and those really big issues, can seem overbearing and, and really overwhelming. So I think taking that next step is really important. Reach out to your networks and and talk with about it with other people. You'll find that you're not alone. And actually finding your community of practice that can walk alongside you in that journey is really important. Within the work, I also sort of work a little bit on the advisory council for Social Impact Hub and have for a number of years. And they have a social fellowship program, which is an opportunity for people who are looking to create change of career, if you like, into purpose, or even looking at how they can drive purpose within their their own organization as an entrepreneur. And it's a really beautiful opportunity to take a step back and create a network to learn, to be able to do as well, to get involved with social enterprises and support them. And I think actually looking my advice would be to take that step, to take a social fellowship with Social Impact Hub or to build a community of practice amongst their friends, amongst their work colleagues, amongst some of the charities that they're passionate about. Find what what drives them, what makes them angry, you know, what keeps them up at night. And that's really where you start. Belinda Morrissey, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. You're most welcome. It's been such a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.